I spent over a decade of my life in the academia and graduated from Harvard with a degree in theology, and yet I knew very little about God or what life is about. What would you say to someone who's feeling lost and directionless and is looking for their purpose or mission in this world? I used to feel very comfortable with my name, but never with the way that I looked or comfortable in my own skin. And what was your name? My name was Huiling, which meant wisdom. And you are very wise. Thank you. Thank you, Rivka. Raised in a Buddhist home in Singapore and educated in Christian schools with multicultural exposure, Rivka Goldstein was a perpetual student with many more questions than answers. Feeling out of place, she embarked on a journey that eventually led her to Harvard University on a full scholarship where she studied theology. After years of study in academia, her quest for answers to her pressing questions about God and spirituality led her to a discovery in which she found inner freedom. The story is literally one for the storybooks. One of the things that we really appreciated about this interview is how Rivka chose the Jewish religious life that we were born into, that we live. And there are so many of us at different ages and stages who question our life choices um, in our communities. And the fact that Rivka actually chose this life, she lived another life, and she chose the life we live. She also made her own sacrifices along the way when she chose this life. And despite the many sacrifices she had to make, she still chose this life is is inspiring and fascinating. It's very common for people to question their life's choices. You know, it makes sense. There's a lot of stringencies and rules and boundaries and people have questions. And I feel like it happens a lot with people who were born into this lifestyle. So I think it's important to hear the perspective of somebody who chose this life, who chose to take on these stringencies and these boundaries, because when you hear from them, they, a lot of people who have chosen this lifestyle believe that the life they lived before, that was very uh, limiting in many ways. So to kind of like open ourselves up, you know, having an awareness of our experience and what it means to us. And that she says that she finds this life, not because she finds it necessarily easier, but she finds it more meaningful and more purposeful. You know what that reminds me of? Um, Ida, you told me about this book that you were reading. It's called The Midnight Library. I went and got it. (laughs) I'm in the middle of reading it. Uh, It's actually sat on my nightstand for a while. It was not at the top of my list of books to read. And then one day I started reading it. Uh, The lesson is so profound where a woman, you know, has the opportunity to revisit points in her life where she, um, you know, she felt that she should have done things differently. So she had many regrets in her lifetime. So she's revisiting different lives that she felt she would have been happier in. And she, and she discovers, I mean, I don't want to give it away for anybody who wants to read it, but it's a very, it's a deeply impactful lesson. Yeah. It's already, the lesson's already there in in the beginning of the book where in the first experience that she has, you see, it's not as easy as she thought it would be. It's not as, you know, what the choice she would have made is not as glamorous as she, it didn't turn out as glamorous as she thought it was going to be. And every situation had its hardships. And yeah, I think that's a really profound lesson. You know what? 10 years ago, I probably would have like lapped up this book, but I somehow as you go through life, you think that this would have been better or that would have been better. And then you realize, you know, it's your life. The life you're living now is what you want to make the best of. And, and more than because. that, this is the life that you are supposed to be in right now. Right. And to lament a life you should have had is to not understand 
to not understand how we can't predict the outcome of things and and our our minds are very much prone to being you know to distortions to really thinking something but it's not necessarily the case this is a quote from rabbi taub rabbi chase taub situations are controlled by hashem the one area where hashem gives us control is in our thoughts so wherever you are you are for sure in the right place you may just not be thinking about it the right way right exactly We hope this interview impacts you as much as it impacted us and that you learn some things, that you might learn some things about yourself and the way that you live um, that maybe you didn't know before. Yeah, I hope you find it uplifting like we did. And I I actually even just uh, took one quote and I put it on my wall in front of my desk and it actually empowers me. One of one of the quotes within this conversation. Which one? Even if you take one. Which one? Which one? Happiness is a decision, not a condition. I love that. That's the one I wrote up. Yeah. Happiness is a decision, not a condition. So, yeah, that kind of encapsulates a lot of what we talked about. So just tuning into your purpose in this world and finding love in it. You might just start stepping into your purpose today after listening to this episode. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. It was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of the connection through sharing our experiences. Our goal is to bring you insights, wisdom from the people who inspire us, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Hi, Rifka. Welcome to From the Inside Out. Today is very special for us because it is the first time Ida and I are doing an in-person, in-the-flesh interview. And we're so grateful to be able to have this opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to have you here. Rifka and I just finished your book, Creating a Life That Matters, that you uh, co-authored with Rabbi Manus Friedman. Uh, Very insightful. And I loved how it started off as a love letter to your son. And it eventually turned into a mission and a project. And I'd love to hear more about your journey and how that came to be. So a book has a life of its own. I did my dance and the rest is in God's hands. So I'm thrilled to hear that others are benefiting from it. So when I found out that I was about to become a mother at age 40, I was overjoyed. Finally, a miracle. Because my husband and I, uh, seven years we were in our marriage before we became pregnant. And uh, as a high-risk mom, many thoughts came into my head when I became pregnant. You know, what if something happened to me? What if something happened to my husband? Um, Who is going to raise our child? And how would he know who he is? Um, what we stood for, and what are the important values that we live by. And with that in mind, I began writing a manual. You know the manual that everybody lament about when things get bumpy in their marriage and in life, and they say, oh, you know, life didn't come with a manual. And we didn't learn this in school, or nobody taught us. 
And this is true because I spent over a decade of my life in the academia and I graduated from Harvard with a degree in theology. And I knew very little about God or what God expects from us and our life in general. So I wanted to equip my son with the knowledge that he needs, an instructional manual or what my husband calls a reference book to guide him through life from the beginning till the end and everything in between from dating to marriage to parenting and even, God forbid, tragedy. It's so true. There is every, everything is in this book. Everything. <laughs> yeah. So another reason for this manual is that my husband and I are both Bali Chua. We don't have uh, Bobby or Zadie or aunts or uncles or cousins that we turn to when we need support or guidance, or Torah guidance in life. And in truth, I became Jewish, got married, became a mother and wrote this book all in complete solitude without the support of blessings on my birth family. Wow. For this reason, I don't take anything or anyone for granted. So the journey of a convert you wanted to know is very much like that of the journey of the ugly duckling. In fact, I think that it's a rite of passage and coming of each story for many women in search of the true self and in search of the identity. So Ugly Duckling was hatched by a mother goose and spent her life looking and feeling like an outcast. She was ostracized and she was ridiculed because of the way she looked, which was very different because she was very different from her brothers and sisters. And so she went from place to place in the farm looking for where she belonged and not finding. She was th thrown out of the chicken coop, the horse's stable, and everywhere she went. Summer, fall, winter, spring, she couldn't find her home until one day she saw a herd of beautiful and gracious swans. And then she realized that she was royalty after all. I've got to bring out that book for my little boys. I used yeah. to read it to my girls. Now I'm going to get the ugly duckling yeah. again. But that Can I ask you, what did you find most challenging about adopting this new way of life? once he saw the swans. I used to have a Chinese name and I look like the person, but I never felt like that person. Well, what, what was your name? Can I ask? My Chinese name was Huiling, which meant wisdom. And you are wise. Thank you, dear. Thank you. And today, I don't feel the name. I, don't, I didn't feel the name, but I looked the part. But today, I looked the part, but I don't fit the name. Like Rivka Goldstein, you know? I mean, it's uh, the Chinese Rivka Goldstein. <laughs> you know? I think it looks great. Thank you. I think it looks beautiful. Thank you, thank you. So very earlier on, for example, uh, in, my, in my journey, my Ahavas Israel was tested. I was... Um, I just got engaged and, and my, my husband said to me, you know, um, why don't you go find uh, something like a band that will match it? So I went to a store, I went to the, um, uh, to the mall and I was looking and I struck a conversation with a woman who happened to be Jewish. So she said, Mazal Tov. And, you know, I say, thank you. And at the end of the shelf, I saw a woman staring intently at me. And it wasn't a nice day. She was, you know, almost angry. And then she couldn't hold herself and she blurted out, Oh, bitches like you 
stole all our Jewish husbands. Like something like that. Oh I cannot quote her exactly, but I remember that female dog, uh, you know. Wow. <laughs> yes. And I was shaking when I first heard that. And I said, wow, this was so unexpected. But I went up to her and, and not looking at her, I said to her, I promised you that I'm going to dive into Hashem, that you'll find your shidok. And so I went to the shoe department where there are many shelves and I sat down shaking and I said to Hashem, Hashem, please, obviously, she must have been through something very difficult and maybe, you know. So I said, please, Hashem, help her to find her shidok. Then I was very proud of myself that I dabbed for her. Wow, that's a level. Yes, yes. And then another story was uh, recently I was at a bris. And this woman, again, looked at me intently and said, are you Jewish? I said, yes. And she said, you converted? I said, yes. And then she said, is your husband very rich? <laughs> I said, yes, he is very rich. He married me. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And then I ran away, of course. But um, I think people are always going to shock you and disappoint you. But they're only messengers. But the message or the lessons, they are always good. So that's one thing that I learned on my journey. Well, you actually wrote about that in the book. Yes? Yes, in, in the chapter on choices, you wrote how we don't have a choice in the outcome of something, but we have a choice in how we react. Yes. But to actually go and give them a blessing is another level altogether. That's, that's next level. And that that's, is next that's level. That's next level. So thank you for the inspiration. So what led you to study theology must have been much so I was yeah. a perpetual searcher. I was always searching and looking, but I really didn't know what it looks like, what it feels like. I don't know what I was looking for. Right. But when I came to Yiddishkeit, I said, oh, I'm finally home. This is what I was looking for all along, but I had no idea what it was. Wow. Um, like your aha moment. Yes, right. yes. It right. was my aha moment, yes. And from theology at Harvard, no less. Um, that's really amazing. So as I said in my book that um, years of theology study pales in comparison to what all the Hasidic masters are teaching us. And my choice of teacher, or my master teacher, is Rabbi Freeman, Rabbi Manis Freeman. And you wrote the book together. Well, it's all really, truly his teachings and his wisdom. I am just his pen in so many ways. I said, you know, I didn't have to reinvent the wheels. I could just put his writing and this is what my son needs to live by. Well, you, you guys uh, make a great team. Make thank a very you. inspiring team. Thank you, thank you. And thought-provoking team. Yes. Do you find, just to ask bluntly, do you find it difficult to cover your hair? Was that, that something difficult for you? Um, it wasn't difficult for me covering my hair because I'm one of those people who have no patience to sit in a salon and do my hair or nails. Me too. <laughs> So, you know, once I had this fancy updo and a woman came up to me and she said, how long does it take to do your hair? And I said, I don't know. I'm never there. <laughs> and it's great. I love it. Yes. I That's true. We can just, we put our wigs on and we just look glamorous. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I celebrate Shadles and the people who invented it. 
you know, but finding the right shetals, that's a whole new different story, you know. Yeah. It took me a decade and many shetals later, but my go-to, the one that I still love is just hat, because living at the time in Singapore and, and, and in Florida, you know, it's easy, provide shade, so I like hats. Um, and also very early on in my marriage, it was a source of shalom bias because my husband would have preferred that um, I didn't cover my hair or I use a scarf. And at that time, I had to choose between honoring my husband and fitting in. Um, sadly, I chose fitting in. But today, I would have chosen, um, you know, honoring my husband. How many years later was that? In, well, thankfully, it wasn't long. It took him a few years to realize that I was really covering my hair for him and that, um, and that it was the right thing to do. So, so it didn't take him long to come on board with um, with me, but as I said, we were both Baldi Chuva, right. figuring out our ways. In you know, is he a convert too? No, he was uh, born Ashkenazi. Yeah. So I, I I don't know that this is on to the next question, but I feel like this is such a good opportunity to talk about specifically like in relationships when and you're you know you do a lot of relationship coaching. So I'd love to know this is when when let's say I would I want to do something and then I'm kind of grappling between what I want and what I know my husband would want me to do. Like if you had someone who came to you with this particular, this specific thing, like my husband wants me to do something, but I don't, it's not me or vice versa. I want to do something, but my husband doesn't want me to. Where do you lead them? Uh, sages teach us that we see the faults of others, but we don't see, we're blinded to our own faults. And I think nowhere is this more true than in a marriage. So I think that um, to preserve your marriage, it is very important to see from the other perspectives. One of the things that my mashpiak repeated to me more than once, and if I had to hear it more than once, it must mean that it hasn't, you know, internalized enough. She tells me the story of Michal and King David and how the Torah tells us and mentioned Michal only once where she looked out the window at her husband and she was disgusted by what she saw. She saw that her husband was dancing with the commoners. Here's a royalty dancing with the commoners and she was disgusted by that. And the Torah tells us at, that at this point that she was known, she was called Michal, the daughter of Shaul, rather than the wife of King David. And so I think that's very pertinent to us. We step out of our marriage when we don't honor our husbands or what he wants, and we don't celebrate him, we don't see him with a good eye. And what is the Torah telling us? Why was the window mentioned? Because she could have gone to look at him from a different window, and she would have saw a different husband. Wow. That's really beautiful. I've never heard that before. Yeah, and that also what's interesting is maybe once we look out the right window, our husbands kind of come along with us, because you had said that your husband embraced it with time, and maybe because you, you opened a different window, he was able to do that. Yes. Yes. So we frequently step out of our marriage in a way that we don't even realize. Like, you know, um, say, for example, if a wife is at a checkout counter 
and she's fumbling with her, you know, her, her purse to look for her wallet or whatever. And then the husband turns to the clerk and say, oh, you know, she does that all the time. Or, or if your husband spills something on, on the table and you look at the waiter and say, oh, you know, he's such a klutz. Even in these little moments, we step out of our marriage. And then we should be cognizant of that. Or the way we speak to each other, or the way that we greet each other, you know, we brush each other off, and all these little things, you know, we sever the intimacy when we do all that. Yeah. I loved your chapter on love. Yeah. yeah. As you see, I'm saying the word love loosely, and that's what we tend to do sometimes. You wrote about how the desire or the hype. There's this, there's this hype of the emotion and it can often override what counts most, the preciousness of the person and the feeling that we are needed and that can be much more empowering than love. So can you discuss what love means to you and a healthy approach to Im implementing it in our lives? So love can be a form of idol worship because it's one that is so ingrained in us by the popular culture and by indoctrination from Hollywood that we are so not aware, we don't realize that we're actually struggling in this form of idolatry to the point of destruction. And love is a false god. And like all false god, it's going to disappoint us. Why? Because love is an emotion by definition, emotion is unstable. It's up, it's down, it's sideways. And just like what your spouse thinks of you is going to change, guaranteed, love too is going to take on different tone and tuned depending on a variety of conditions and from time to time, depending on your mood and you know the duration of your relationship. So we must not build a home or a marriage based on love because it's a flimsy and shaky foundation. For example, people say, we know we fell out of love so that the relationship ends. And yet we worship love. You know, love will see us through. No, it won't. <laughs> love never fails. Yes, it does. <laughs> love conquers all. All we need is love. Because when there is a problem in a marriage or with children, we say all we need is just more love and more love. That's not true. Love is not even relevant. The right view is love should only be viewed rather this way. Someone who is important to you, you ought to love. And someone who is not important in your life, no matter how much you love them, they are still not important. So what's a better word than love? Is home or being needed or where you belong. So when you are fighting with your spouse or when there is no love at that moment, you still belong with each other and you still important to each other. And the same with our children, when they misbehave and the, and, and the last thing that you feel is love for them. In fact, you want them to get out of your house. But they're still precious and they're still important. So enjoy the love when it's there. But when it's not there, don't panic. But make no mistake that the person you love is still precious and important and deserving of your respect and adoration. Because kindness, respect and consideration is what we need. Two people who love each other may not stay together forever. But two people who are kind, respectful, and considerate of each other can stay married forever. So love is only the icing on the cake. Don't make it the center of your relationship. Wow, I think we're yeah. going to press replay. I once heard this great tip 
that stuck with me um, for relationships is when normally when a couple or really anybody, you know, well, mainly a couple when they're arguing, you know, it's my view against your view. Instead of sitting on the same side of the table and this is the problem in front of us. Uh, we'd love to also ask you about self-love. Is it possible for us to do so while wanting to grow and setting new goals for ourselves that we want to achieve? How do we love ourselves at the same time? So what is wrong and what is better than self-love, self-growth, self-searching or self-awareness, self-improvement? These are all good things. In fact, it's the very subject that I teach at the seminary every year. I tell the girl, this is your year of self-discovery. You are going to get in touch with yourself. But the goal is self-transcendence. The goal is to go beyond yourself and stop being busy with yourself. Because too much self is, can be paralyzing and destructive. You know, you see these people who cannot get out of therapy and they're in therapy for years and years because they never feel like they're good enough or that they, they're not there yet. Or, or people that go to the gym and they're pumping iron and you look at them and you say, they don't know when to stop. So it can be counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. But what is better? It's better to forget about yourself and just focus on what God needs from you and what you're needed for. And that's far more liberating. You know what's interesting? We, we did an episode with Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Yes. And he kind of really helped us tap into this whole concept. He actually says self-help is often no help at all. Huh. Yes. And ever since then, we've been, we've been noticing how it comes up in every episode and in our lives how, yeah, sometimes you go to therapy and you just never get out of it because you're just so stuck within yourself. And like shifted our perspective on, because we both self, we love reading self-help books and we're all into <laughs> transformation and growth. But that point is so powerful that sometimes we lose ourselves within ourselves. Right. So by doing God's will, you can do it anytime, anywhere, and under any circumstance. In fact, we're doing it right now. You know, we're bringing light into the world, sharing our struggles. Hopefully somebody can benefit from it. So I'd like to share a story um, about exactly that. Early on in my coaching career, a man called me and he told me about his wife who lost an arm in a car accident. So she hasn't been out of the home for almost a year and he didn't know what to do. She refused to see any family members and she hasn't spoken to anybody, but she agreed to meet with me. So I sat there and I listened to her and it had occurred to me that what she was concerned about was what people would say because her husband was a prominent you know, a guy in a small town that they, were, they lived in. And she, couldn't, she said, I couldn't even step out of my backyard because she didn't want her neighbors to see her. And it occurred to me also that she had actually processed what happened to her. She had mourned and she had come to a place, she's coming to a place of acceptance of what had happened to her. But she was very, um, I hate to use the word paralyzed, by the fact that she didn't want the negative energy, the negative uh, attention. She'd been an artist and a calligraphy and a pianist. So, yes, yeah, so it was, it was tough. So I told her at the end of our conversation, I said to her, 
this is what people are saying behind your back. They say, hey, did you hear so-and-so lost her arm in a car accident? And, oh, yes, what a tragedy. And, you know, it's horrible what happened to her. But did you also hear about that new restaurant they just opened? Say, yeah, let's go. So I said to her, this is what people are saying. Um, and she realized, she told me a week later, that she's been so absorbed with that in herself that she's forgotten about her purpose, which was to continue to be a mother. And I had said to her that you have given your child, your children rather, a life lesson that they can have on how to cope with a crisis and a tragedy. And I said that they had lost their mother that year because her oldest child had come back from college in order to be with, with, in order to help her. And then I said that everybody in the home was frozen for one year. But Baruch Hashem, she went back to life and she's, uh, her husband told me, back to the grocery store. Her life had resumed, wow. yes. You know, what comes, up for, what comes up for me now is how many people um, don't talk about their mental health because they're worried about what other people will think. At the ex- they worry what others will say and think at the expense of their sanity. And I think this story highlights how people might talk, but what's the bigger risk? What's the greater risk? You know, not talking about it and at risk to your own body and mind and soul, or talking about it and risk that somebody will, you know, have your name as part of their conversation. So I think it's definitely something to think about. Um, You know what else is interesting? Yeah. Is, you know, when you tell Hashem that, use me, use me and make me a channel, make me an instrument to you, Hashem helps you out. Because subsequently after that meeting with her, I started to see on my chat group, that uh, everybody started sending these special Olympics videos. And of course, I forwarded them to her. And these videos never popped up again before or after, or at least maybe I didn't notice them. But it was very helpful, she told me later. And it helped her to come out of her shell. Okay, so which, which kind of brings us to, uh, you know, the notion of living versus existing, which is something you talked about a lot in the book. But could you share, you know, what is the difference between living and existing? This chapter in the book really is the central message that I want to share with my son. And that's why it's on the first chapter. And it's really is the brilliance of Rabbi Freeman, Rabbi Manis Freeman. So people say life stings, life stings and then you die. But that's not true because a moment of life is infinitely precious. Existence is what stinks. Because to exist is cumbersome. You know, to exist, you take up space and then you demand all kinds of resources. You need food, you need drink, you need a roof over your head, you need security, you need a support system. They're all very heavy. And then if you take up space and you make you don't make a contribution, that's embarrassing. So another, another uh, common expression that people say is, you know, we go out to make a living. That's not true. We go out to make an existence. True living happens when you come home. So in short, existence is give me what I need. Life is do you have any needs? What can I do to help you? 
when you are alive, your existence is not heavy because life is buoyant. It carries you. Existence is dead weight. You have to carry it. So what is the solution? Live. Put energy into living, not into existing because it has an astounding seesaw effect. When you put energy into living, you do not need to put as much energy into existing. But when you put too much energy into existing, you have no energy left for life. And I quote the book again, that depression occurs when you add weight to your existence. You do so by worrying about this and crying over that and by fighting over this and sweating over that. But when you give too much importance to your existence, you add weight to it. And at some point, your existence becomes so heavy that you can no longer carry it. And that is when it comes crashing down on you like a ton of bricks. And the next thing you know, you cannot get out of bed. You can't even make a phone call. You've lost your ability to function. Your existence has completely taken over. Life is the contribution that you make in, in your surrounding. And so when Hashem told us to keep Shabbos, what is Shabbos? Shabbos is a day where you say, Leave your existence alone. Focus on your life. When we give tzedakah, this dollar that is good for my existence, I give it to you to help you with your existence. It gives me life. Or when you're helping and honoring your parents, you know, your parents need you. So when you do for them, you get life. And the Torah is brilliant because Hashem doesn't tell you you don't have to love your parents or agree with them to do for them what they need from you. So when you make their existence easier, you get a life. I just want to say this reminds me, I think I've mentioned it in another episode because I love this thought, but it ties into that. Someone wrote into the Lubavitch Rebbe about their problems and got themselves into a depression and the Rebbe wrote back to them, you talk so much about what you need, but what are you needed for? <laughs> so it's that change in perspective. Mm-hmm. Instead of, and it, it's like the existing and the living. Mm-hmm. When we're existing, we're just focused on what we need, and we're, when we're living, we're focused on what we needed for. Just kind of trying to like meditate on the, the living yeah. versus existing, on the how, like you know, on how to actually. I think a lot of a lot of parents will say that you know I want to carve out time for my children, or like we'll say you know in a relationship, couples will say we need to carve out time for each other. The underlying thinking in that statement is. My existence is primary. I need to carve out time for my life, for the things that are important, like my parents, my spouse, my children. I think that, and I don't know if this, uh, that's why I'm thinking about it, because I'm not really sure, but I read somewhere that if, you, if you're saying I need to carve out time for my child, then the, the statement needs to be understood differently. It's, you're not carving out time for your life. You're, it, your life is... So I, yes, I think you know I know what, I mean? what you... I, I understand what you're saying, you, that the time with your spouse and your children, that's life. Yeah. That's not yeah. separate right. from your other aspect of your life. You should not be separated. Right, right. I remember we, we interviewed um, Ruchi Fryer, who she was the first uh, Orthodox judge. Oh yes, she's outstanding. Judge. Yes. She's awesome. And she was saying that her whole family was part of her campaign, part of her, you know, like journey. <laughs> they were like putting up signs and her husband was going around and giving out flyers, <laughs> you know. So that's kind of what I think about is like her, her family is her existence and her, well, her, her existence, her family is her life mm-hmm. and her existence is just a means to that's living. Kind of one and the same. Existence and life one and the same, or are they two separate things? 
because existence can be light, living. Do you know what I mean? Our existence is within, maybe our existence should be within living. Our existence has no value without life. That's right. Yeah. So speaking of life and, you know, seeing where we're needed, we often talk about, you know, finding our purpose, right? Which is essentially seeing, you know, why we were created, why we're in this world. When it comes to purpose, someone who's searching for their purpose and wants to tap into this life force as opposed to just existing, what would you say to someone who's feeling lost and directionless and is looking for their purpose or mission in this world? So first of all, God does not bring us into this world and then hide our purpose from us or our mission. He has a specific task for each of us. And he's not about to hide that from us. Nothing is random and not even a leaf that blows from place to place. So like in the beginning, God created the world. If we pause right there and reflect on just that sentence alone, we realize that he is more invested in his creation and that he wants his creation to be partner with him to fulfill his vast eternal plan. So he needs us more than we need him. So if he needs us, then he's going to tell us. And in our quiet and still moment, we will know what God wants from us. I can't help but think of um, Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, who shared with us when I asked him, did you ever imagine that you would be where you are today? And he said, no. He said, I didn't, never even saw myself as a speaker or lecturer. He was a columnist yeah. at his father's um, newspaper. And when he said that, I had like a moment of shock. Like you never thought you could be a speaker and you're like one of the world's greatest, most inspiring speakers. So, <laughs> so to me, practically that meant um, for someone who's still searching for their purpose and they haven't found it, keep searching and you know, don't be so quick to shy away from something that you think is not for you. I can speak for, I speak from personal experience. Everything I'm doing today, I would have never imagined that I'd be doing right now for so many reasons, but um, is to open yourself up to the possibility or to possibilities in general. Actually, almost every person that we've spoken to, and I'm sure that, oh, you tell us, is like, yeah. hey, no, feel ha, that you, you've come to a place in your life where you know what your unique mission is. Now, hey, you told me when I was an eight-year-old little girl that one day you are going to grow up and move out of your country, your birth, and, and you are going to grow up and become Jewish um, and, you know, and you get to wear somebody else's hair on your head and cook Shabbos for 40 people. I would say to you, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> and inspire other Jews to become reconnected to their Judaism also. Baruch Hashem, Bezras Hashem. So, but yes, I do know my unique mission. I know that from the time I was very young, I said to Hashem, please, Hashem, make me. I didn't call him Hashem then. I say, make me your instrument. Use me. And that has always been my mantra from the time that I was young. And I say, and I find out that God has revealed my mission to me moment to moment. And we don't have to know what's the next step or what's ahead. But if we are still and we are open and we surrender, then we will know. And I'll give you an example. So early on in my marriage, 
we were trying to blend, you know, two opposite cultures and personalities and backgrounds and life experiences and a huge age gap. Where, where is your husband from? He's from Minneapolis. Hi, husband. <laughs> I hope he's listening. I'm sure he is. He's yes. very proud. On Minneapolis? Oh. You're um, my hero. <laughs> oh. Did you hear that? <laughs> yes. And you said that there's an age gap. How many years apart are you? Um, I don't know if he wants me to tell you, but it's about 20 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting. That's that fascinating. Is, that is a huge ga- a- a gap. You know, in, it's okay. Not a huge spiritual gap, which yeah. is the most important thing. Right. From, so early on in my marriage, um, with all that uh, huge opposite cultures and personalities and backgrounds and life experience, we used to have a lot of sp- what I call spirited arguments. I love that way of saying it. Just the mere realization that we were trying to merge two opposites, it had helped us today, thank God. But early on, yes, we used to uh, have those spirit arguments. On one occasion, we had this one of these spirit arguments. And I remembered bending over in pain, contemplating the big D. But then I remembered that every moment I am to be a channel for God. If Hashem chose us, the women of this generation, to lead an entire nation out of Golis into our Geula, it must mean that we can and that we are capable. But the dark side does not want this to happen. And the dark side is going to try its best to get to us. And where it's going to get us is where it hurts the most. In our marriage, in our children, and in our self-esteem. And I said, we cannot let that happen. So we are, my son goes to a, um, a Lubavitcher school, and they have this program called Tiva Hashem. And it occurred to me that Every woman, it's a Sivas Hashem. We are in Hashem's army. You know, I'm General Goldstein in my own platoon called my family. And what grade is your son in? He is um, fifth. He's 10 years old. Okay. So the same age as my daughter. Yes. Yeah. Is he at LEC? Yes. So is my daughter. That's funny. So we are all in Hashem's army. We're all, every woman is a general. And I think that we're all fighting an invisible army. It's not the virus. You know, it's not your mother-in-law, not your father-in-law, not your brother, sister-in-law. You know, it's not, it's not that employer that does not recognize your contribution or your achievement. It's not um, your husband's ex-wife or your stepchildren. They are not the enemy. The real enemy poses a clear and present danger. And it's at all times. And it has a name. It's the Yetihara. The Yetihara is sneaky and it doesn't let. It chips away at us and it destroys us. Everything that we work so hard for. It tries to dim our light. And tells us we're not good enough. But that's not true. That's not true. Every woman is given the wisdom and the strength to build her family and to raise her children. And, the, and that is vitally important that in Hashem's army and as general, that we get together to support each other as often as we can.
Yeah. So don't go through it alone. Find a friend, a family, a mashpiak or a coach. Because as my mashpiak says that two yetsir tov is better than one yetsihara. Yeah, mashpia, yeah. So mashpia came up a few times in our conversation and um it's so important. It's not easy to find, you know, the right one, but it's worth looking. It's worth, it's kind of like finding a good therapist. You know, it's not always easy to find the right person, but keep looking and, you know, hopefully the, the, the search will have been worthwhile. So let's talk about freedom of choice because sometimes the ego can mimic us. Could we get confused about which voice is trying to serve us and which one is not? Cause it's the, um, the Yitzhahara is very good at pretending like it's looking out for our best interests when obviously, you know, it isn't. So, um, Rifka, can you talk about freedom of choice? Because you had mentioned that in the book, like I shared earlier, that we can't choose the outcome of things that's in God's hands, but that, that we do get to choose our actions. So can you expand on how much choice we really do have in our lives? And, and on that subject, if you want to just make it a little bit more personal, do you feel the freedom of choice in your life now in comparison to before? Did you feel free before and do you feel free now? Freedom of choice means that you have the freedom to do God's will or not do God's will. That's it. Everything else, you don't have freedom of choice. Although the, we think we do, but we don't. Now, as a convert, this is very clear. It's very clear to me that Hashem has guided my every path, as we were saying before. And He has guided it in such astounding accuracy. So if you look at your life, or as you said about uh, Rabbi Jacobson, our path has already been determined. Who we're gonna be, who we're gonna marry, all that has already been determined. I tell my students that, you know, they all want to know, you know, we do a class where we write um, what we're looking for in a husband. So I tell them that who your husband is, he already exists. You know, you, you cannot make him taller, you cannot make him shorter. All this has been predetermined. And Baruch Hashem, because marriage is a big deal and Hashem's not going to leave that in our hands. He's going to decide all the big things. And then he's going to guide us on all the small things. If we really tap into the, the, the faith aspect, like Hashem knows, my job is to just be like a conduit, an yeah. ambassador of infinity. That's right. what Shay's help calls it. An ambassador uh -huh. of infinity. I'm, I'm not calling the shots. I'm just the, the channel. There's a lot of freedom in that. You feel lighter knowing you're not burdened with the responsibility of God. Right. I'm not going to play God. That's not my role in this world to have control over everything that's going on. It's just knowing the difference where I, where I need to let go and where I need to be proactive. That is like essential, I think. Like I asked earlier, do you feel the difference in your freedom? I guess there's a difference between freedom of choice and actually feeling freedom, but it's uh, intertwined. But if you feel, if you felt more freedom then or more freedom now with your role now in being um, Jewish and religious. Freedom comes with responsibility. True freedom, like happiness, is knowing what is expected of you. So was I more free before or am I more free now? Now that I know what Hashem wants and requires from me, I'm freer. I don't find religion to be restrictive or constrictive. I find that all of these restrictions are liberating because it gives you a clear guidelines. You look at the world, everyone's confused. 
They don't know what's expected of them. They don't know what the boundaries, where the boundaries lie. We don't have this problem with our Jewish children, Baruch Hashem. They know who they are. They know what's expected of them. So that's true freedom. I think that's, it's also very misunderstood. I think boundaries are there with the purpose of providing freedom so that let go of trying to control every aspect of life, which is, we simply mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we have to remind ourselves of that. Yeah, sometimes that can hold us back. It's inspiring to hear from you, who has been in both places. You have actually have internalized this, that the restrictions, because it's truth, has set you free. But, you know, well done to you. You said in your book, well done is much better than well said. And so for those that feel held back from these thoughts or from putting things into action because of overthinking things or because of perfectionism or because of feeling overwhelmed with their lives, what advice would you give them? So trying to be a perfectionist is about control. And the need to control stems from a lack of trust, all of which causes us untold stress and anxiety. Now, if you grew up in a home like I did, where you felt that you had to be in control of everything or everything falls apart or that you could not depend on anyone, this becomes a lifelong lesson in letting go and trusting God and letting off control. Someone said that for peace of mind, quit as the universe manager. And I thought that was funny because I felt that I had to help Hashem run the whole world. And to relinquish control, there are tools you can use. Actually, this reminds me of something I just read this morning. There's a woman in France, I think she's turning 118. So she was one of those centurions. And she was being interviewed. And she said, you know, you know, everyone wants to know what the secret is. And she said, you know, I've lived through... Uh, one pandemic, I'm going to live through this one. And she said, you know, I'm looking forward to celebrating my birthday with the champagne and, and uh, her favorite desserts. And then she said, the most important thing she wants to tell her readers is trust God. It's okay. You can let go and just trust God. I'm 118 years old, you know. I've learned that lesson. I've seen that, you know, he knows how to run the world. Let go and let God. Right, let go and let God, as Ray Tab says. So we often ask our guests what their definition of success is. And, you know, you've achieved many successes in your career and in your life. Um, You share a story that highlights how success is often misunderstood, where there was a panel of well-known speakers. They were all successful, you know, in their own right, but one of them was, I would say, by societal definition, successful, but didn't live up to moral, certain moral standards. Um, So the point you were making was how being good at something is inconsequential unless we're doing the right thing. So with this in mind, what would you say, and I think nowadays there's so many kids who idolize athletes and, you know, celebrities, the celebrity culture, um, so with this in mind, is how would you say, or what would you say is your definition of success? So yes, since my son was in first grade, I would send him out the door every morning with lots of kisses, a little too much now that he's 10, with this message. And I said it this morning, Yosef, do the right thing and have a Kiddush Hashem day. Not be the best that you can be. 
because you can be the best criminal. You can be the best uni bomber, <laughs> was obviously brilliant, but do instead what God needs from you. So I aligned him and his mind with God's mind, which is the definition of truck good, design good, right? What is that? It's not just think good and it will be good, but really is to align your thinking with God's thinking. So I like him to walk out the door thinking, okay, God wants me to learn Torah. Okay, I'll do it. You know, God wants me to be respectful to my elders and my teachers and my rabbis. Great, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. And God wants me to have Ahavas Israel. I can do it. So align yourself with what God wants from you. Because again, you didn't come here for you. You came here to the lowest world to do what God expects and needs from you. So my definition of success is very simple. Do the right thing. So every day when I daven more than once, I say to myself, good job. Or if I say to heal him or send food for someone I don't know, I congratulate myself for doing the right thing. You know, if I, here's a hard one. If I hold my tongue from saying something critical to my husband, I really pat myself in the shoulder. Or I to say, anyone. Yes, or anyone. That's I say, you, yes. I say that's success. You know, I would say you rock and roll. <laughs> that's wonderful. I love that. So just as you, you don't have to show up for every argument that you are invited to, that's another quote, you can always congratulate yourself all day long. So to succeed in everything, you just start small and reward yourself if verbally. So I celebrate little successes and I feel plenty successful all day. That's beautiful. Don't show up to every argument that you're invited to. That's great. So moving on, um, what would you say has brought you the most joy in your life? And did it take work to get there? And how would you define happiness? Like how would one find it in you know, dark times? In your darkest of times, you must know that this too shall pass. And this too is for the good. So you can actually make that your mantra. Because there's not one among us whose life has not been challenged or whose heart has not been broken. So you're not alone. My favorite quote, one of my favorites that saw me through a lot of hard times was, when the heart cries for what it has lost, the spirit loves at what it has found. Wow. We have to trust that all is good and all is for the good, even if you cannot see it right now. So what would I say, for example, to my younger self when I was crying myself to sleep and when I was confused and trying to figure out what the next step is? I would say, just you wait and see. Everything is going to work out. And I think that everybody agrees that gratitude and happiness goes hand in hand. One cannot exist without the other. So what brings me joy? Being a mother. Because God has withheld this from me for so long and thereby cultivating my longing and my gratitude and my appreciation for being a mother. And what follows is happiness. So focus on God's needs, God's will. Because how could you go wrong if you align yourself with the master of the universe and his vast eternal plan? So what I've learned about joy is that God is fair. Because no matter what the situation, no matter what your challenges, 
you have the freedom to choose at every moment to be joyful or to be resentful. So joy is a decision, not a condition. And then when it comes to happiness, you can fake it till you make it. So don't wait for things to be good to be happy. When you are happy, everything becomes good. So I would like to share a quote from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, if you see something that needs to be repaired and you know how to repair it, then you have found a beautiful piece of this world that God has left for you to complete. But if you only see what is wrong and ugly in the world, and I would add people, then it is you yourself that needs repair. I would like to give you, Ida and Rivka, a blessing. May Hashem continue to bless you and fortify you to go from strength to strength in the holy work that you do with this podcast, bringing light and hope to so many. Thank you so much. Amen. And I also want to give a shout out to my son, Yosef, who asked me. <laughs> I said, what's a shout out? He says, he explained to me. Okay. I, I, want, I tell him that Yosef, Ima's entire life has been a shout out to you. Oh. I thank Hashem for you, my precious child. And I thank Hashem for your Abba, who is my hero. He is an active partner in the fruition of this book. So I thank you, my beloved husband, Benjamin, for giving me an amazing life and an amazing existence. May everything that we do bring us closer to our ultimate freedom and redemption. And maybe now.